0: Everybody get a uh, like a half sheet. Yes. No. No. I'll get a couple. Yeah. Good. Thank you. You need one. Anybody else need one? You need one. Very glad you're here. If you don't get the emails, uh, you can sign up on the um, the, uh, little sign-up sheet on the left as you leave on the table, phone number, text messages. Next meeting is two weeks from now, which will be November, which is hard hard to believe. I was in Walmart a couple weeks ago and saw all the Christmas trees out, and I was like, oh my gosh, how is that possible? Uh, So anyway, glad you're here. Um, If you need any information from this meeting or other Iron Leaderships, it's all on the ironleader.org website. Uh, If you would turn to Psalm 95, which is where we're going to be this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brandon. So this year, just as a review, last year we did uh, the character of Nehemiah, and he was building an exterior wall around the city. And this year we're talking about building a strong interior wall, a strong Christian character, becoming more Christ-like so that as we enter into different places that require leadership, whether that's self-leadership leadership of the family, leadership in a business, leadership in the church, leadership in the community. You'll have the tools, the interior tools, to be able to, to work on whatever that uh, leadership, external leadership uh, challenge may be. So that's what we're trying to do. And so my question that we keep circling around is, how do you build these interior walls? What, what characters, what habits do you need in order to have in place, in order to be ready for whatever that challenge is. So that's what we're trying to do. And so I want to take a look at a uh, couple of pictures here you, you'll be familiar with. This is Hurricane Michael, which is in that an incredible picture. That's uh, Mexico Beach, which most of you have probably seen pictures of. So this is a Category 4 storm coming on the coast of Florida. And I would say we're in a category four storm in our culture. Culture's rolling onto your shore, whether you like it or not. And it's got destructive force. And my question is if this storm is is on us, it has been coming on us, but it's certainly on us now, how do you withstand the kind of cultural. Circular winds. Here's a before shot of Mexico Beach. Very beautiful looking place. A few hours later, it's hard, hard to even imagine. Imagine leave, living at Wrightsville Beach and this is what you look like. And then a few hours later, a storm blows basically everything away. This would be a typical house on the beach. But there was one house called the Sand Palace, Sand Palace, beachfront, almost completely unscathed by the storm. So how can we stay in a storm and stay unscathed? How is that possible? Now this guy, these guys who own this house, I sent you an article about it. Uh, It it costs double the amount to build this house than any other house. The amount of concrete, 40-foot pilings, concrete pilings, imagine that, digging down 40 feet, all the rebar he had in there. So, you know, whatever the price per square foot for a normal beach house, it was double to build this house. And he said he built it to withstand 250-mile-an-hour winds, so the code might be, you know, 125 or something like that. So he, he just doubled everything. Now, you know, you might say it's ridiculous until now. Now, he, you know, he's got a nice beachfront property still. And so my question is, we want to be like this house. We want to be able to be in the storm. We can't run away from the culture. We don't want to go live in a cave But we don't want to be the person who just thinks we're doing okay, and then the culture comes on us, and basically we just get wiped out by the culture. So what can we do? What kind of pilings do we need? What kind of habits, what kind of practices do we need to be able to withstand the storm? And so we're going to be talking about things that you can do positively. Like today, we're going to talk about worship, and then we're going to talk about things that you have to avoid, temptations. uh, things that you have to work against, let's say like anger or envy or pride. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth between sort of positive aspects that you need to be building in to yourself and then negative aspects that you need to be avoiding. And so this morning, I want to tackle the what I'm going to call the keystone habit is worship. You know what a keystone is? It's that little triangular stone at the top of the, the bridge or the gateway. And it holds all the other stones together. So I would say this is the keystone habit. This is the 40-foot piling. Worship is the 40-foot piling. If you, don't, if you have this one, it, it has an effect on all the other ones. If you don't have this one, then it has a negative effect on everything else. So we're going to talk about this keystone habit, which I'm going to call worship. And um, I'm going to define it this way. That it's the internal treasuring of the true God above all things. The internal tre—what What is worship? Internal treasuring of the true God above all things. Or. An internal hunger and thirst, because Jesus uses those metaphors like that. You know, all all who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come to me. He's talking about something internal about you that's driving you towards Jesus. uh, Internal hunger or thirst for the true God above all things. Now, one way I get this definition is from John chapter 4. And if you're familiar with this story, it's the woman at the well. Remember this story? So Jesus comes upon this woman at the well. Uh, He sends his disciples away because they would have blown up this evangelistic effort. And so it's just Jesus and this woman. She's come at noon because she's got her bad reputation, so she's not going to come with everybody else. And her bad reputation is she's had five husbands, and the man she's currently living with isn't her husband. So here's a woman who has an internal hunger. Whatever it is, a need for relationship or whatever she's getting out of these things, she can't seem to find it, which is true of any cultural hunger. You keep feeding on it thinking it's going to satisfy you, and it never does. So Jesus encounters this woman, and then he makes this statement, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in truth. truth. Those are the kinds of worshipers Jesus is looking for. So that's where I'm getting my definition. We're going to worship, real worship happens in truth. We all know it's possible to hunger for things other than God. You have those kinds of hungers. That's called idolatry. I, it, my internal hunger really isn't for the true God, it's really for, and Brandon mentioned some of them, you know, my, my job, my, my money, my relationships, my popularity. I mean, you can fill in, there's a host of other things. So it's possible to have a hunger, but not after a true thing. If you're hungering after a true thing, Jesus, then it sets you free. If you hunger after a false thing, it creates more and more of a hunger. You can never seem to be satisfied with it, or it feels like it imprisons you. So here's a woman who's been imprisoned. John chapter 8 If you hold to my teaching, if you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. See, that's what Jesus, Jesus has come to to get to this woman and say, I'm trying to set you free. You have all these hungers and they're imprisoning you. You you don't even have any relationships with anybody else. And I'm trying to set you free by just knowing me. So that's what Jesus is saying. You got to worship in truth, which is worshiping Jesus, and you got to worship in spirit. So it affects your, your inner being your heart. It's, it's the, we've had a picture of the iceberg. It's the underneath part. It's, it's what's moving you forward, what's underneath just what we may see on the surface. And we also know it's true. It's, uh, it's possible to be worshiping, the, to be acting towards the true thing, meaning I'm coming to church, but not really worshiping. So it's possible to have a great hunger but not towards a true thing. That's called idolatry. It's possible to be coming to church and be saying true things, but not saying it from your heart. This is what Jesus says in Matthew. These people honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts Are far from me. They come to church. They look like they're doing the right things. It appears as if they're aimed in the right direction, but he knows their hearts. Their hearts are not towards Jesus. So it's not just a you're not just going towards a true thing. You've got this internal hunger for it. So it's a worshiping in spirit and truth. The internal treasuring of the true God above all things. That's my definition. Now, let's look at Psalm 95, and we're going to read the first seven verses here, and we're going to talk about some things that worship uh, involves. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise, <coughs> for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So this is one of the great psalms of praise. And if you're ever looking for a prayer of praise, Psalm 95, Psalm 96, Psalm 97, Psalm 98, Psalm 99, Psalm 100. those five or six psalms are all great psalms to use when you're trying to praise the Lord. And I want to see I want us to see that it involves these three things. One it involves our emotions. Sing joyful, thanksgiving, praise. This is a song of David. David, probably one of, if not the greatest leader in the Old Testament, is also the greatest worshiper in the Old Testament. He wrote most of the Psalms. So I just want you to know it's possible to be a great leader and a great worshiper. Because in our culture, it feels like if you're a great leader, somehow you're you're like a silo. You're, you're, you know, you're off by yourself. You can't really express your emotions. And here David, and he's a great leader, one of the greatest leaders and a great worshiper, and he's worshiping with his, his emotions. He's got this whole body into it. One of the quotes that I'll send you in an article from, uh, for next week is from Desiring God, and the quote says, I want my sons to grow up believing that a grown man singing is one of the most natural sounds in the world. A grown man singing is one of the most natural sounds in the world. Just think if you're, you're a dad, think about Chris Banker. He's got a young boy. Craig, got a young boy. 20 years from now, or, or their son's going to say, and my, my dad, he wasn't a great singer. But, I mean, he, he showed me it was an internal thing. It wasn't just an external thing. You say these things, you know the stories, you got the right answers, but there's something about the internal part of who he is that comes out in a song that doesn't come out in a statement. And I want that to be a part of worship. That's one of the necessary parts. I love the conversion of John Wesley, the the great evangelist who started the Methodist Church. He actually was a missionary to Indians, Native Americans, in America, in Georgia, and he was unconverted. Imagine that, you're an unconverted missionary. So he sails from England across to, to Georgia, total failure in Georgia, And uh, the thing that changes him is he's on a boat with Moravians who sing. They sing in storms. They sing in calm water. And he says, there's something about what they have that I don't have. And when he came back to Georgia or when he came back to England and he really heard the gospel, here's what he said, my heart was strangely warmed. Isn't that a great little phrase? In other words, I knew a bunch of true things but I really wasn't a worshiper, and when I got in touch with that, or it got in touch with me, something happened with my heart. Something happened with my emotions, and my emotions were were changed. Secondly, it affects your mind. Look at verses 3 through 5. David is just rolling these truths around in his mind. The Lord is great. He's the king above all gods. He made the earth. He he makes the mountains, the sea is his, everything is in his hands. He's just taking these uh, truths about God, and he's just processing them. That's part of worship. I'm just remembering true things about God. The Lord is great. He's the king. I'm reminding myself of his creativity, his power, his authority. And the way that you fight against the culture, the cultural messages, is to have the truth in your mind because you're going to go out there and the culture is going to feed you all kinds of lines about who's got power, what's great. And if you don't have something to fight against that, you're going to buy that. You're going to bite that hook. What's great is making this sale today. What's great is winning this game. What's great is closing this deal. What's great is being happy. What's great is having sex with my wife. What's great is making an A on my test. What's great, there's all kinds of competitors to what's great. And if you don't have the greatness of God locked down in your mind, you're going to, the culture is going to just run you right over. And you're going to be buying into what's great from the culture. And David doesn't want to have that. So he reminds himself, he's got it in his mind. Tim Keller, I love this quote. If you're a Christian and you're dealing with enslaving habits, love that phrase, enslaving habits. Just think, what are your enslaving habits? you probably like, well, which one? I mean, right? You're not like, I don't know. You're like, yeah, that one and that one they're enslaving They're habits you you don't like you wish you didn't have them but you, they seem enslaving you can't seem to get away from them in your mind or however they work out if you're dealing with if you're a christian dealing with enslaving habits it's not enough to say bad christian stop it you ever notice that that doesn't work It's not enough to beat yourself up or just try harder. The real reason you're having a problem with an enslaving habit is because you're not tasting God. I'm not talking about believing in God or even obeying in God. I'm talking about tasting, tasting. The secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness to be moved by it. See that emotional thing? Moved to tears, moved to laughter, moved by God who is great in what he's done for you. This needs to be happening all the time. This type of worship is the only thing that can replace the current fire burning in your heart. I love the way he puts that. My enslaving habit it's a burning fire. The enslaving habits I have feel like they must be addressed right now. That's why it's an enslaving habit. My my need for attention, my need for sexual satisfaction, my need for comfort feels like an enslaving fire. And it feels like I must address that right now. And Keller's so rightly saying, I've got to have great worship to fight that. In order to end up looking like this, I have to have great worship. We need a new fire. I saw the Lord. He was close to my heart. I I see that He's great. I know Him. When that fire is burning in your heart, then you're set free you're set free. You're set free from those enslaving fires. They don't control your mind. They don't control your money. They don't control your attention. Third thing you have to have is is you have to have it with your emotions, your mind, and your will. Notice six and seven, you bow down, you kneel, you're a sheep who needs a shepherd So it's something that happens from the inside, you're worshiping from the inside out, you roll it around in your mind, and then it affects your will, you bow down, you kneel, you say I'm I'm going to submit myself to, to this person I'm worshiping, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and then what does it say? Thy kingdom. See, that's that whole purpose is I'm seeing the greatness of God and thy kingdom come. I wake up this morning and I have kingdom plans for the kingdom of Paul Phillips. Every morning I have those same plans. And I've got to bow down and say, okay, but you may have a different plan today. And I want your plan over my plan." It's got to affect your will. And I would say this is particularly difficult for men because men don't want to bow down. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You think it's right. The culture is telling you it's right, but it leads to death. And, of course, nobody likes to be thought of as a dumb sheep. Right? I mean, nobody wants to say, I'm a stupid sheep. I, I kind of entered into this tire tube thinking it was cool, and now I'm stuck. And look at all my friends. They're like, I don't know. How did we get this guy out of the tube? But this is you and me. I don't know what your tube is, but this is you. You jump through that tube thinking, this is going to be fun. And now you can't get out of it, and you can't go anywhere so funny so you got to it's going to affect your 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 emotions it's going to affect your your mind it's going to affect your will which one of those is most challenging for you notice everybody worships verse 3 above all gods you're either going to worship the true god or you're going to worship another god because humans are designed to worship so there's not like people who worship and people who don't worship. Everyone worships. The question is, what is it you're worshiping? What is that thing that's driving you forward? David Foster Wallace, who's a sort of a popular author, He's now, he committed suicide a few years ago. He was a professor, not a Christian, but had some very insightful things about the human uh, being. And he says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is to what, is to what we worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, he's not a Christian, is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. Isn't that interesting that he said that, a non-Christian? One reason you would, everybody's going to worship, and one reason you would choose to worship some kind of God is if you worship something else, it's going to eat you alive. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll never be more, you'll, you'll never, you'll ever need more power. Worship your own intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They're the default settings. I don't know. I was trying to think about uh, showing a Harry Potter clip. I'm not a big Harry Potter fan. I'm 55, so it kind of came out after my time, but I thought, you know, if you're, if you're what, you're like 30, you watched Harry Potter, Right? Because that was 15 years ago, when first Harry Potter movie, 2001. So uh, if you're not a Harry Potter fan, that's okay. We're on the same team. But there's a little clip here that I thought was helpful. Harry Potter is sitting next, sitting and staring at a mirror. Anybody know the name of the mirror? Of what? Uh, Erised, Erised. right? How many watch this? Go ahead. It's okay. It, t- it takes a man to raise your hand. Uh, so he's sitting at the, the, the mirror, said, and what does said mean? Anybody know? Spelled backwards, it's what? Desire. So that's how the author says you're sitting in, the, in front of the mirror of desire, and it shows you what's your deepest, darkest Desire. So one question I have is, if you were sitting in front of that mirror, what would you see? What would it show is your deepest, darkest desire? For Harry Potter, he sees his parents because he, ha- he didn't have parents growing up. So he longs to be in that kind of family relationship. And then his little wise wizard friend, remember him? Dum- what's his name? Dumbledore, right? He comes in and uh, talks to him about this, uh, this mirror and what it does to you. Back again, Harry? I see that you, like so many before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Araset. I trust by now you realize what it does. Let me give you a clue. The happiest man on earth would look into the mirror and see only himself exactly as he is. So then, it shows us what we want, whatever we want. Yes, and no. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest and most desperate desires of our hearts. Now you, Harry, who have never known your family, you see them standing beside you. But remember this, Harry, this mirror, gives us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away in front of it, even gone mad. Back again, Harry. See, he saw it one time, and he had to come back. And he's just sitting and staring at the mirror as as if it's life-giving. And what does his wise friend say at the end? Men have wasted their lives. Just try to imagine how many men have wasted their lives staring at this mirror. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your whole life chasing after this one desire that you never actually grasp hold of. And it totally ruins your life. Jesus has come to set you free from all that. But you've got to make him that one desire. He's got to be that one thing. The truth sets you free and then, then you're able to really live. So, what would it look like if you looked in the mirror of Arased, the mirror of desire? What would you see? Let me just close with two more closing comments here, two components of worship. One of them we see here, it's corporate, and you see it's, it's kind of easy to miss, actually, in the psalm. Come, let us. You notice that? It's not, come, let me but what we're so individualistic when you read the psalm you almost always just appropriate it to yourself you don't see the us you always just think about it as an individual individual thing let us fix our god we are his people and and we need to have this worship in a corporate setting so just think about your corporate worship how's your corporate worship is it rich is it fulfilling I mean, this is a little part of it, but what about your Sundays? What about the other groups that you're in? It's got to be corporate. You're not going to get very far just by yourself. You can ask a football coach. One guy practicing on his own, how far is he going to get? Yeah, not very far. Yeah, I did four burpees. That was a whole practice. I'm done. You know, that's it. So it's got to be corporate. It's got to have a corporate piece. I love C.S. Lewis. He has this very special friendship which tells us a lot about worship, his three friends, a guy named Charles, a guy named Ronald, who is J.R.R. Tolkien, and himself, his name is Jack. So he says this, in each of my friends there was something that only uh, another friend can fully bring out. Let me make sure I'm reading that right. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I need other lights than my own to show all his facets. One of the friends, Charles, died suddenly, and Lewis thought, I'm never going to see him again. I'll show, I will never again see how Ronald reacts specifically to Charles's joke. After Charles died, far from having more of Ronald to myself, now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. Does that make sense? You're in a relationship and one guy dies and you think, well, I'll have more of this one, but the other guy brought out something that I can't bring out of him. So I actually get less of Ronald without Charles than more of Ronald. Same thing with worship. Worship by yourself is wonderful. You've got to, you have to have your own individual worship. But by yourself, you're only going to be able to see a fine little crack. The more diverse your worship, the more diversity of people, the more diversity of age, the more diversity of economics, you get to see much more about Jesus than you can see all by yourself. And secondly, it's individual, and you don't need to turn there. But in Mark chapter one. It's a passage I refer to quite often. Jesus has, is healing people at night. Those people go home, tell all their friends, and the next morning the whole town is at the door. And the disciples wake up to all this noise, and they can't find Jesus. So they start scouring around saying, hey, all these people are here to see Jesus, and they're trying to go find him. What, what has he done? Early in the morning, while it's still dark, he finds a place to pray. And when they come find Jesus and say, the whole town is looking for you, what does Jesus say? It's time for us to go to another town. See, that would have been the very opposite. If I had just woken up, I would have said, the whole town, oh, let's get moving. But see, then that's my kingdom, not thy kingdom. And Jesus took time individually with the Lord to say, hey, you might have a different plan than the world brings to me. So how are we going to be like this house? The the first pillar in our ability to withstand the cultural storm is worship. It's the keystone habit. You have that, a lot of other good things are going to happen. You miss that. You're going to have a hard time with all the other pieces. Let's get into a group of about three or four here and talk about worship and especially how worship affects your leadership. Ready, break.